Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 401. This program is dedicated, above all, to the terrorist victims and their families in Eretz Yisrael and Eretz HaKadosh, both the last week and the days before Chayel And we will begin with that, because how can we not address such horrific tragedy which affects us all, it's all our brothers and sisters being killed simply because they're Jewish and in the Holy Land, in the Promised Land. This program is also dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuch Elena and Miriam Bas Chayesar Altois, and Yukasil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todes ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altois. I said, let's begin with that even though we'd rather not talk about it, we'd rather it didn't ever happen, and may this be the last, last tragedy, the Jewish people, but it's just all anywhere else. We should already march into the Gula Mitis Vashlema in this early days of the month of Ir, and Yashem Refecha. And that Refecha, that healing that God provides, should first and foremost provide healing and consolation to the families that have now suffered such a tremendous loss in Eretz Yisrael, and of course to the extended family and to all of us. And the obvious question is, Ad Mosai, until when? And what can we do about it? Because we Jews were always trained and taught, and especially this was the Rebbe's, one of the central cornerstones of the Rebbe's leadership, is that we're never victims. And even when we suffer, there's something we can do. We may not know why things happen, so we don't ask why. We don't know God's mysterious ways, but that doesn't mean we don't ask what we can do about it. The Rambam makes it very clear in the beginning of the laws of Tainius, the laws of fasting, to explain and justify why we fast on the major fast days. So he says, because when a catastrophe strikes a community or an individual, it would be axorious, cruel, and insensitive to see it as mikra niklis, an accident, move on. No, we have to look at it as a wake-up call of introspection and soul-searching. What can we do to improve our ways? This is not about finger-pointing or blame or accusations. It's about understanding that when you are aware of something that happened, if it's a positive thing, and also a negative thing, in this case we're talking about a negative thing, it has to serve as some type of wake-up call. And indeed, where do we get direction from? We get direction where this program is called Chassidus, applied from Chassidus, and namely from the Rebbe, the seventh generation of, the, of Chabad Chassidus, and the Chabad Rabbeim. And, and every time, unfortunately, when things like this happened, the Rebbe always spoke about it, called for an addition in light, when there's more darkness, you add in light. As a matter of fact, some of the Mifzayim came direct outgrowth of terrorist attacks in Eretz Yisrael. First of all, Mifzah Tfilin, the first of all the campaigns, Tfilin began in relation to the Six-Day War. Before that, and of course after that, and Tfilin has this gula of protecting, but all kolame oritz v'yorimimekah, that when, when, the, when the nations will see the film, they will be afraid of you. So it has a certain element of protection. 
The next set of Mivtsayim came connection with the Yom Kippur War, and specifically Mivtsa Mezuzah came after the Malot tragedy in northern Israel, where a school was attacked again, And Mezuzah also has the, the Sgula of protection. That's why you say Hashem, that God protects the homes of people. And the same with the other Mivtsayim. So we see whenever there was a tragedy, there was a response that interestingly, even though the tragedy doesn't disappear and the loss doesn't go away until Mashiach comes, but what lasts, and we remember, is the millions of people that are put on film, that are put mezuzahs on their doors, and the other Mifzayim, as a result of these negative things. When there was the tragedy that Tavshin Tazayin, in Kfar Chabad, an attack on the Beis Sefer there, the school there, so the Rebbe then established, sent Shluchim and established and all kinds of different positive things as well. So the lesson is clear. This is a wake-up call that we don't just move on. We have to increase in Avis Yisrael and Ahdus Yisrael in unconditional love for each other because unity is the exact direct opposite of what these enemies of ours are about disunity and about hatred. So the response to hatred is love, love for each other, unconditional love, even more than we've had till now. And to take it seriously, and it should be sustainable, not just for a few days after a tragedy happens. And each of us has to look inside our own hearts and souls what we can do to increase and add in that Ardus, especially now we're in the accounting of the Omer period, which itself is a tragic period, which is why we don't make weddings and music and, and cut, don't cut our hair, to remember the Magaif of the plague that attacked the Tamidir Rabbi the students of Rabbi Akiva, which we, we'll speak about shortly due to the fact that they didn't show honor to one another. So what's the best way to repair that? Is by showing honor and respect. So each of us, that's in general, and each of us has to look for things that we can increase in that, ourselves, our families, our children. But the last thing, absolutely unacceptable, is to ignore it, or to just throw up our hands and say, what can we do? There's always something we can do. Now, does that, that does not preclude the need for every defensive measure and every retaliatory measure and every, and every possible way to deter, deterrence, to not allow any such attacks in Eretz Yisrael. And Eretz Yisrael being strong, as the Rebbe always emphasized, that Eretz Yisrael's strength is always the best way to prevent these things, and weakness always opens the door for the enemies. So this, this of course, does not, what every, everything we're discussing is, does not preclude that, Every war has to be fought by Gashmis and Baruchnis, both in the physical sense, in the defense way, and the, I would say, offensive way, and preempting all kinds of attacks. And Israel clearly has demonstrated its ability to do so. And of course, the Ruchnistic side, which is, goes hand in hand, they both go together. Of course, prayers and any other things that we can add and increase during this time. And again, this should be the last tragedy before Mashiach comes. She should come already, and we should eliminate all these negative things and only celebrate simchas. May the families be consoled and be strengthened, and may we be strengthened as well, and strengthening them and doing whatever we can to support these families, and by extension all the families in Eretz Yisrael, and wherever the people and Jews may be that need this type of protection. So this was critical to discuss because when things like this happen, as I just said, the last thing is ignoring it or 
pushing it aside or putting it on the bottom of the agenda. That's why I began. Even though this program is chassidus supplied, you could think it's chassidus supplied. This is also chassidus supplied. To how you deal with a tragedy, how you deal with a loss, how you deal with an attack. And again, may the Ebishta protect using the words of the Psukim that the Rebbe would often cite. The providence of God protects and watches more than any other place in the world. From the beginning, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, meaning every day, 24-7. And especially being at its Akedah, the Holy Land and the Promised Land. With that, let me begin with um, some a comment, nice comments. It's always good to read some a few comments, and then we'll go straight into this week's. Is as I mentioned, we're in the middle of Sfirus Emer, as well as this week being Parsha Emer here in, in the United, in outside of Israel, I should say, and in Israel they're really reading the next Parsha Bahar. So. Um, one comment: I want to send a short note to say thank you for your wonderful Sunday night class. My entire family watches it together, live streaming on my phone. We learn a lot, and we love how you keep the show relevant with current events and the weekly Torah portion. Thank you, and may Hashem bless you with good health and abundant parnasa. Thank you, Amen, and kol hamavarech mezbarech. May you be blessed, and your family, and everyone, all the listeners, and friend, all people, with with healthy children, abundant parnasa, livelihood, and... Um, and all in good health for many, many long years. So, we'll begin with now Parshas Emer. I'll do it like this. I'll go in the order of Parshas Emer, then Sfirah Emer. Then there's a question about, somewhat follow-up to uh, last discussion about the Rosh Ir, and a few other relevant topics, including abortion, um, and some other follow-ups that were not discussed, that were discussed last week and to follow up this week. Okay, that's a little preview, so let's begin. Pasha Semer, as the Alter Rebbe says, to live with the times, which means with the Pasha that we read in each time, because the Pasha illuminates for us, not the newspapers, and not the internet, not social media, the Pasha of the Teda, that is our life and our sustenance, illuminates for us the true meaning and the true energy and the two true vibes that exist right now in this week. So when we look into it, we can learn lessons for our time now. That's what the Alter Rebbe said. So the Teda is timeless in that sense and as well as timely, relevant to each particular time. Since there's seven days in the week, the Pasha divides into seven sections. So every day has its corresponding section that we live with. And hence, the learning of the Teda, the reading of the Teda, Chitas, Every day we say the chitas, the chumash of each of each of each parsha, and so on. So with that, we have being that this is already we're already in the eighth year of chassidus uh, applied. So obviously, I've spoken about emer number of times, and you could always go back to previous episodes. Uh, so I discussed many different angles, but a few other a few questions came in. One actually that I did address at length. So I'll begin with that one because it's a very controversial question about this week's Pasha. So in this week's Pasha, we read about the Kohanim, the priests, whose mission and job was, role was to bring offerings in the temple. But there are conditions how offerings should be brought. So here's what some, one person writes, and it echoes something that I spoke about 
probably 300 episodes ago. Yeah, episodes 117, 118, which would be a long time ago. But the, the question is still relevant, so let me read it. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in Pasha Emer, there are very disturbing verses that say handicapped or blemished people can't serve in the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple. And it gives a list of disqualifying characteristics such as a coin with skin rash, bushy eyebrows, crushed testicles, or one leg longer than the other. It would seem logical that we should go out of our way to help and support people with disabilities, and not the opposite by excluding them from communal activities. Are we today supposed to kick people out of shul if we don't like the shape of their nose or if they have dandruff? Okay. So literally a question like this was asked several questions a few years ago. And actually there's a mimer from the Alter Rebbe about this. But basically asked the same question. And that Samach Tzadik and Derech Mitzvah Secho in the, in the mitzvah that talks about this in this topic of the, the carbonists that are brought by the Balik, by the Kohanim, that have mumim. A mum is a blemish, as you described. Which would seem, besides the fact that it seems so uh, not sensitive, and we're not here to necessarily be politically correct, but from a human being, the Torah is so sensitive to every human being, it's not their fault that someone's born with a handicap or some other disability or lesser uh, imperfections. So why would they be punished in this way? The Altareb even points out in this mimer that he talks about that when it comes to eating truma, which is a mitzvah also for a koyin, you don't say they're disqualified. It's only the bringing of offerings. So clearly they haven't lost their kohuna, their priesthood. So why is it when it comes to offerings, this seemingly overt discrimination? So as I said, I discussed it at length, and I'm not going to go over the whole arichus of the Maimer. I will briefly sum it up in episodes 117, 118, which you can find at chassidusapply.com. You can either search by number of the episode or by topic, uh, kahanim or priests or offerings or blemishes or handicap by one of these, uh, these um, keywords. And there I discussed it more at length. Briefly, when you finish reading what the Al-Tareb explains and the way Tzamech Tzadik presents it in Derech Misosecha, you come away with, uh, what shall I say, I mean, a, a fascinating, and it turns the whole thing upside down. And you see on the contrary the sensitivity, even more so in this case. You could say, how could that be possible? So the truth is you have to go back to the original topic itself. What is a koyin? And what is that, an offering? And what is a Beis Amigdash? These are all methods for us in this human existence to connect with the divine. God created this world in order for us to make a dirabitachtem, to be a partner with God and creating a home for godliness, the divine, which is the essence of existence in this tachtenim, in this lowest of worlds. But being that is tachtenim, and that's the whole purpose, meaning it's concealed, so you don't see the divine. And you actually see the imperfections of this world beginning with the very dissonance that we don't feel our source, we don't feel the connection. The great Simtsum Adishin, which is God's method of concealment, concealed the divine, turned everything inside out, that instead of godliness being the real reality, think of the hand being the reality, inside out, that we, now we think existence, our material existence is true reality. Think of someone thinking that the glove is more important than the hand inside the glove. We're not even recognizing there's a hand inside the glove and worshiping the glove. 
in the words of the Shalach, so the sites, klippa, means a shell. Imagine worshipping the shell and not recognizing that all it is is a protection of the fruit within. Worshipping the potato peel, the orange peel, an eggshell. That's what klippa is. When you appreciate and understand what it is, then it belongs, then it, everything fits. But that's this material world. That's called tachten. And our job is to reverse, which is a big effort. God gave us mitzvahs, and general, a temple, beginning with the, with the portable sanctuary, the Mishkan that they traveled through the 40 years in the wilderness. And then, for Asilimidash refers also to the mitzvah to build the Beis Hamikdash, which was ultimately built after different stages, permanently in the right place on the Harabayas in Jerusalem, the, the Beis Hamikdash and the Bayis Sheni, and ultimately Bayis Shlishi, which will be a permanent Beis Hamikdash, Mikdash Adne Kenyadecha after Mashiach comes. What is the purpose? V'shachanti b'seicham, exactly this point that I shall dwell, I shall rest, I shall reside among you. So the Mishkan's purpose is to serve as an interface. Zashar Lashem, as, as Yaakov Avinu said when he realized where he is, this is a gate to heaven. A gate is an interface, a bridge. The Kahanim are the messengers that God sends, Shluchidir Rachmana, God's messengers, the merciful messengers of the merciful one, Rachmana, to serve in this temple and represent us. One of the ways is through offerings. Adam Kiyakrim Mekem, what's an offering? The word korban means not just a sacrifice. It really means to be get closer from the word kiruv. Again, closeness between what? Between two entities. When we bring a korban, whatever korban it may be, we're bringing of ourselves and we're getting closer and more connected to the divine. And the kahanim have that particular role. So the Re'al explains that when, there's, when, when, the, when someone is born or some way has a blemish or a handicap, of course it's not their fault, and they're not punished for it. On the contrary, it shows that that person is ultra-sensitive and in a way is absorbing and reflecting the inconsistencies that all of us have, because all of us have blemishes, all of us have scars and wounds, physical ones, spiritual ones, psychological, emotional ones. So it's recognizing, it's not ignoring it. And it's saying this person in a way is sacrificing themselves. And he gives an example. When you go to war, he says one of the tachsisya mochama, one of the strategies in warfare, you're dealing with an enemy and you don't know where the enemy is. So sometimes you'll send out a few soldiers into the open to draw the enemy out. And those soldiers could end up being hurt and even killed. But they were, they were sent out in order to expose the enemy. And he gives that example that some people and for God's mysterious ways, and this is not a justification, it's just explaining the idea, are born with something that's not complete because in a way they're representing the rest of us to draw out the negative forces, the clippers, and expose them so we can win the battle. So as long as we live in a gullus, in, in a world where there is disease and there is illness and there is death, and it's an imperfect world, because the divine is concealed, we have to contend with it. So the Torah says that in the time when it comes to the Beis Hamidosh, which is the most sensitive place on earth, where every little thing matters, when the Holy of Holies, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he had, couldn't have one blemish. Not because, because, because the Holy of Holies is so powerful, it's like a drop 
Think of a, a dust, a piece of dust on your eye. When it's on your finger, it's insignificant. On the eye, it irritates it. In the holiest of places, every inconsistency matters. So it's not about the individual. It's reflecting the inconsistency. When you want to bring a carbon, you want to have something that is complete. So it's not a punishment. It's on the contrary. It's recognizing that we need to contend with that. So the mitzvah, that's a mitzvah. When a kohen doesn't bring an offering because of a blemish, that's a teda mitzvah. That means God is saying, this is what I want. So you're actually revealing godliness even in the place of the wound, even in the place of the blemish. Reminds of the story with Rabbi Elimelech and his brother, Abzusha, when they were in prison. So one of them, I think Rabbi Elimelech, was very depressed. His brother, Abzusha, says, why are you depressed? We were taught by the Balshamta, we were taught by our Rabbeim, that every situation, you have to always be besimcha, even though you're in prison. He says, not because I'm in prison, because we can't make a bracha, it's already days that we can't make a blessing, because in the cell, in the prison cell, there was a bathroom. You're not allowed to make a blessing in a bathroom. So Abzusha's brother says to him, remember the same Abishta that said to make a, ble- make a blessing, also said, don't make a blessing when you're in this uh, cell. When he heard that, Rabbi Melchi began, got up and started dancing. Simcha, he's fulfilling God's will. Similar to what the Friedrich Rebbe told his captors when he was arrested, when they asked him, do you know where you are? When they wanted, to, they wanted to try fear into him. Do you know where you are? He says, yes, I'm in a place that's put for the mezuzah. That's absolved of mezuzah, like a, like a stall. Like a horse stall, where, where you're not allowed, you don't put a mezuzah up. And that itself, the Rebbe explains, was mam because that's also a mitzvah, not to put a mezuzah in a place like that. So, so Rabbi Elmel began to dance. The other prisoners saw him dancing. It's contagious. They also began to dance. Came the, the guard, who was a big anti-Semite, says, why are you all dancing? They said, we don't know, but the Jew there is dancing. And why? We don't know, but it's something connected to the pail in his room. When the guard heard that, he ran into the cell. He said, I'll show you. And he took the pail out. And that was that. Then they were able to make a blessing because they took the pail out of the room, the bathroom. So even in a situation where there's something negative, there's also positive. And this is not about an individual, this is on the contrary. It's honoring and saying, going into the Beis Amigdash, you want to create the best perfect interface. So you are in a way that soldier that is put up front, that yes, you may, be, you may not allow to bring the offering, but you're still a coin, you eat truma, as explained in that mime. I was going to elaborate less, but I already decided to elaborate on it. It's an unbelievable take that when you see something that's unique, and even a scar and a wound, which we could say, why? Why am I shoulder? Why should I be born with a child that has some blemish or a person themselves? So you have the total right to ask that question. And God should only protect and not allow anyone ever to be born this way. But we never understand the mysterious ways of God. It could very well be this Nisham is reflecting something of the dissonance and even the, the dysfunctionality of existence. Now, why is this person chosen and now another? And then another, that I cannot answer. But don't see it ever as a negative, even though it's a challenge. And I know it's easy to just say. It's coming with the full compassion that the Teda offers us. And the Teda doesn't mince words. It tells us exactly the story. So it doesn't mean that this child or this individual or this client cannot would serve God. Obviously, you serve God with everything, in every possible way. But when it comes to a certain element of bringing closer, kiruv, karbun, 
of the divine place, just like the Kayan Godel who goes into the Holy of Holies and is a blemish. So that somewhat defiles that Holy of Holies. And that's what we're talking about, a larger mission and a larger goal. So, that, so that's how the Alter Rebbe explains it. And of course, everything that Hashem takes, He also gives something in return far stronger, just like the advantage of a Baal over a Tzaddik. So even if someone's lacking something, they definitely have other areas that complement and compensate for it in much stronger ways, as the Rebbe explains about special children, that they have something special. It's not just a euphemism. It's not just being cute. It's actually because they have something unique and special that others do not have, as discussed in other episodes. Okay. Another question on the Parsha. And again, these offer us lessons in our lives, as I'm explaining. It goes like this. So, so again, back to that last question. Episodes 117, 118. I elaborate much more on the topic, I believe. Next question. In Parsha Emir, it says we are not allowed to slaughter an animal and its offspring on the same day. Why not? If the whole idea of a carbon is to elevate the animal, then why not kill as many animals as possible in a day? We are doing them a big favor by elevating them. Well, <laughs> let's put it this way. It is correct that um, the, the carbon, as I just explained, is a matter of elevating, but it's interesting that Ramban writes, why when it says, Adam mikem, Hashem, the whole point is an atonement for the person. So why shouldn't the person be offering themselves? And as the Altar Rebbe says, Adam mikem, mikem, you have to bring it from within you, from your animal soul. And the basis of that is the Ramban, who explains that the truth is, it's a gift from God. A person would have to offer themselves. So God said, I'm sending an animal to this world to replace you. And you have to think when you're offering the offering, you're not killing an animal. It's really you. And the animal is serving in your place. So this is not meant to be done insensitively like in the terms that you're using, which I'm sure are a little tongue-in-cheek here. They just go ahead killing animals. We're not killing animals. We're trying to correct a world that's imperfect. And God said there are many ways to do so. One of the ways is I'm offering you something. I'm the offering, well, the offering you to bring an offering. As the animal is created, yes, and the animal does serve a purpose and is elevated in the process. But this is not meant to be done easily. That's why you see that even when a person eats a meal, look at how a tzaddik eats a meal. So nama apumchar balechel. That when a person eats, it's like a battle with the sparks. I remember when the Rebbe would cut a chala on Yom Tov when he would wash. You could see it was like an effort. It wasn't an easy thing to do. Even when you consume mineral, vegetable, and definitely animal, you're doing it as a mitzvah, not because you're indulging in killing something in order for you to serve your hunger and, 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 and satisfying your hunger or thirst or keeping you alive. It's L'Shem Shemaim. And that's the Kavona Karben. Now, if you don't have that intention in the Karben, the Karben's puzzle is, uh, is, is worthless. And even worse, you kill something for no reason. So the bottom line is there's something going on sensitivity here. So the sensitivity, of course, applies. Animals are also creatures of God, just like the mitzvah of Shaluah Harkan. You send away the mother because you don't take away children from mother, even though the stage has come already at that point where the children are ready to leave. As the halachas discuss this, same thing here, you don't kill a mother, just like the laws of Basar Bacholov, you don't cook meat in others' milk. Where do we learn that from? Because the children of the, of the calves of an animal should not be cooked in its mother's milk. It's a chazorius. 
it's cruel to do so, the sensitivity even to parents and children and offspring in the animal kingdom. And the whole point of a carbon is to become more sensitive, not become less sensitive. It goes back to the theme we, theme we spoke about last week. Torah is meant to make us more refined, sensitive human beings. If somebody becomes like the story of the Baal Shem Tev, when his Talmidim asked him about some of the teachings that he taught, he, he got, went ahead and showed them, because he was teaching that it's not just enough to do a mitzvah, you have to do it with an inner refinement. And he showed them an ox in Ashtraimo, eating cholent, an ox. They see a person dressed in, in the holy garb of Shabbos with a shtraimel, means with all the holy garb, eating chant, but they see instead of the face of a human, the face of an ox. Just to show you, you can be an ox and also put on a, 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 the, all the holy garb. The point is inner refinement, not just doing the technical mitzvah. A carbon was not meant, on the contrary, to become less sensitive, but to become more sensitive. That means carbon Lush and kiruv. And this is something that needs to be emphasized and emphasized again, because so often you see that people follow the laws technically, but they are behaving in ways that are sometimes the opposite of what the spirit of the whole law is, which is Avis Yisrael, as Hillel said, what you dislike, don't do unto another. Unconditional love. Okay. Why? So now comes another story in the Parsha, another controversial question, a whole story with the son of Shlomit. So the Torah tells us, that uh, the son of Shlomit says, the son of an Israelite woman, a Jewish woman, and of an Egyptian man. He came out, he began to blasphemize God, speak against God. Rashi comes to explain and fill in the details. Where did he come out from? So Rashi gives a few different interpretations. But the third and last one is that he went to the Machna Don, because his mother came from the family of Don, and he wanted his rightful place there. Every person... Of the, of the Jews had their machna, had their deg, under the, their tribe. But Machna Don rejected him, saying, No, it says in the Torah that you're supposed to come, that the degel goes by the father, and your father's an Egyptian. So he was rejected. So based on that interpretation, he came out, became incited, and started to blasphemize God. So he was arrested, so to speak, put into, to put in, in, and convicted. And God said that he should be killed by all the people, he should be stoned. So this is one of the questions that's asked, what is going on here? What kind of story is this? So let me read the way it was presented here. Why does the Torah call the son of Shlomit a half-Jew when that is impossible? That is an impossible term? According to the halacha, if someone's mother is Jewish, they are a full Jew. So let me just clarify, the Torah does not call him a half-Jew. The Torah just calls him and says he's the son of Shlomit, son of a, a Jewish woman, and the son of an Egyptian man. doesn't say anywhere that he's a half-Jew. As a matter of fact, Rashi says he converted. So the question is, why did he convert? So, the, so Rashi explains, and the Madrashim explained, because he accepted upon himself, because all the Jews converted by Matan Teda, circumcision, and Kabbal Samitzvah, and, and, and immersion. So there's an Indian of Nizgayer, even though he was born to a Jewish mother, but all the Jews converted by Matan Teir. Now, there were probably some from the Erev Rav that had Egyptian lineage that probably didn't convert. That's what Rashi is coming to emphasize. Okay, so there's no such thing as a half-Jew, correct. But here goes this. Why were concessions made in the law for the daughters of Slavchad? Those of Slavchad came to complain, why can't they 
Tzlovcha did not leave sons, and they wanted to inherit land. So they could inherit land to reside in. But the son of Shlamit was kicked out of Don's camp with nowhere to go, and Moshe Rabbein refused to help him. Where was he supposed to go? This is the same Moshe Rabbein that hit the rock, now telling a Jewish child to go get lost. If Moshe cared about every Jew, he, Jew, he would have made room for his, in his tent for this guy. Then when this guy got upset and being, being kicked out of the camp, even though he did nothing wrong, Moshe had him executed for blasphemy. What about a horrible story of injustice? If I paid all my bills on time and didn't do anything wrong and a group of people would come to evict me unjustly, I would curse at them too. This man did nothing wrong. The tribe of Dan wronged him by throwing him out. Why is there no outrage at the injustice? So I read the letter exactly as is, uncensored, unredacted, because as I've always promised that this program is going to offer questions without uh, nothing taboo, even though I do have issue with some of the tone and the spirit of this question. But this is the tone of somebody writing. I guess anonymously people will write with more, a little more chutzpah, but so be it. But I'm one, as I always point out, it's the answer that we have to provide. This is the question. And the answer has to be better than the question. Seems like a very legitimate question, right? However, like every question, what's the premise of the question? The premise of the question is that you're reading these verses, something's, and something seems really wrong. Where's the injustice? Like similar with what we said earlier about a, 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 a disabled or a impaired or a handicapped koyim, which seems so unfair. But you have to remember there's an axiom in everything. The muskadishin is Tehidah is given to us by God. It's not a man-made book. And it's called Tehidah's Chaim, a Tehidah of life. And it's called Tehidah's Chesed, a Tehidah of kindness and love. Because who is more loving than God who created the human being? Would God be in any way insensitive to his own creatures? Including Shlomit's son? So the Torah is conveying God's will. The Torah is not human beings behaving justly or unjustly. So once you know that axiom, then you have to go the other way around. If the Torah is such a Torah's chesed, and its whole purpose was maybe shalom le'elam, shalom be'elam, as the Rambam writes at the end of laws of Hanukkah, it's to bring peace into the world, to bring kindness. And look, indeed, that's what it did. Look through history. You could have had questions 3,000 years ago, but now... The world has been transformed with the principles of what is called the Bible, the Torah. Principles of justice. That every human being is created in the divine image. And all the laws that follow the kindness, the whole Torah is Avis Yisrael, loving another unconditionally. And on and on and on about the chesed and tzedakah that Avram Avinu initiated. Lasse Zdoko Mishpat and infused in his children and grandchildren. The Torah is saturated. The Torah is based on all these principles. So you have to go the other way around. If you knew somebody that you know their entire life was the kindest, beautiful person, and suddenly you see them behave in a way that sound, looks unkind, your attitude would be the opposite. I know this person. So there must be something, something going on here that I don't understand. Now, if you saw someone that was a cruel person, God forbid, and they behave cruelly or unjustly, so then it, it just confirms what, that which you know. If you don't know who the person is, you don't know what type of person. The Torah we know is all about that type of chesed. That's the premise. So when you see all of this, now you talk about Moshe Rabbein, Yisrael, was a lover of Jews. He was chosen because even one sheep that wandered away from the flock, Moshe Rabbein was so sensitive and 
went running after that sheep and brought him back on his shoulder. So Hashem said, if he's so sensitive, his sheep will be sensitive with my people. Just to drive the point home, what did Moshe do when the Jewish people did the worst possible sin? Chet ego. The sin of the golden calf. There too you could have said, easily, I, I wasn't involved. This is idolatry. They just turned 39 days earlier that you're not allowed to build a golden calf, an idol of other gods. What did Moshe do? No. He held the Jews accountable, but he went up to Moshe Hashem. And for 80 days he insisted, forgive the people. Erase my name from this book if you don't. He broke the tablets at, at, right when he saw it in order again to protect the Jewish people. This is a man that someone will say is insensitive, God forbid. So how is it consistent with the behavior here? So this demands an explanation. But once you have this premise, you look at it completely from another perspective. So I will give a short explanation based on this, but the premise is the most important thing of all. Whatever the explanation is. So when you look at the story, you see such a thing, you could ask the next question. Blasphemizing God is, deserves death? Being stoned? I mean, yes, it's a terrible thing to do. But it seems so odd, especially in this modern age, that we kill someone, the capital punishment. In addition to the question about stoning, doesn't that seem somewhat extreme in general? So all this, the same premise. If the Tatus Tatus Chesed, how does this make sense? Now it's interesting, right after the story, right after blasphemizing, it says when another person kills a human being, they also get the death penalty. What's the connection? That somewhat gives us a hint. This man that the Torah doesn't even call by name, which already tells us something, was not just out of the blue, he happened to come to Don. It was very clear that he was affected strongly by his Egyptian lineage. The Erevrav were troublemakers. Even so, someone is guy like, like him. But, but, but there's a story behind the story. His blasphemizing God wasn't just he got angry and said a, uh, an expletive about God. It was a personality here we're dealing with. A personality that was really causing a lot of trouble. Now, if you look in the Medrashim, you can read more details. The Torah is just telling us the highlights of it. Like in general, the written Torah tells us. But you can see from the story, there's something going on here. Why would Don reject him? Why couldn't they find a way? Even if he doesn't belong there, fine, stay, stay over a few days. Or as you said, Moshe Rabbeinu or others. He was a problem. And probably was warned many, many times he was corrupting others, and he was essentially antithetical to everything that God represented. So his blasphemy wasn't just blasphemy, which answers another question. Is blasphemy such a terrible thing? Yes, it's terrible. But the same thing you can ask about uh, idolatry. Why does God really care? A person wants to be stupid and foolish and worship and bow to a stone or a piece of wood or the sun or the moon. Let them be foolish. Why is it such a cardinal sin? Because it goes against the very purpose of existence and the purpose of God. As the Rambam writes in the beginning of Laws of Aveda Zara, Aveda Zara began because they were looking for God. They wanted a God on their terms. God was invisible. So first the, the stars, seemed like God's messengers. It was seen as God's emissaries, ambassadors. And slowly that was also too far. So people built, began to build shrines on this earth that represented those stars. And then came all kinds of con artists and charlatans who said, you know what, I'll build a house around that shrine. And I'll charge money for you to enter. 
So it all evolved. The point of idolatry is that you are not accepting the most important thing of, or the foundation of everything, and that is you're accountable to some reality greater than yourself, and that's called God. As soon as you create an Avedizar, you're basically saying, I'm worshipping something that I can relate to. No, you should be worshipping something. You should be worshipping a God, not God should be worshipping you. Not creating a God in your image, something you can relate to, but, but you were created in the divine image. That's the whole Bisad. Once you take away that foundation, everything follows. Even murder. You'll say, why? Because what really gives a person, why can't I kill another person if it's in my interest? Self-interest. Dog eats dog, survival of the fittest. Because you don't own your life. You don't own that person's life. You're accountable to another. If you can do things on your terms and decide that God works on your terms, you could also say, you know what? In this case, I'm allowed to kill. Look at the Nazis. They found justifications. The whole point is bittel. And Avedizar is the antithesis of bittel. Bittel means committing yourself to something beyond you. Not having that thing beyond you fit into your framework and your comfort zone. Blasphemy is the same thing. Blasphemy is a total rejection and denial of a reality greater than yourself. And that's God. Now you could say, today doesn't seem like a big thing. People say all kinds of things with their words. But remember in those days, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Agera Satshuva, when he explains the, the karas, when a person did a sin, that the, the punishment was karas, getting cut off, People actually died before they were 60. Why? Because the world was a more sensitive place to the divine. The dissonance was not as deep. So therefore, when someone did something wrong, immediately you saw it. It's like somebody who you see people, for example, who become so toxified that they can eat even garbage. They can eat junk food and it doesn't affect them. A person who's a far more subtle person, like I mentioned before, the eye is more sensitive to even a piece of dust. Most of us are a piece of dust. So these type of so-called sins don't seem big to us. But in the time of the Bible, the time of the Torah, it was very big. So this individual, who essentially was antithetical to God, and the blasphemy was just an expression of it, was finally brought to justice. And that's why it's compared to the killing of another person. Again, even though we may not fully understand it, but it's the root of the issue. And he was a person. Think of a Nazi among you. So even though he didn't kill anyone yet, but he was very capable of doing that because he was essentially going against everything God represented. <coughs> now, was there hope? There's always hope. So perhaps the Torah is teaching us that a person has a father, an Egyptian, like we all have an animal soul, we have a divine soul, there's a battle, and it's up to us who's going to win that battle. In this unfortunate case, it was the other side that won the battle. And those are the consequences. Remember also reward and punishment in Teda. Another wrong assumption is that it's reward and punishment. God is getting even. God forbid. It's cause and effect. When you put your hand in fire, you get burned. When a person essentially cuts themselves off from their source of life by saying, I deny God or I blasphemize God, they essentially themselves have already self-destroyed themselves. So first it begins emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, but then expresses itself also physically because in a world that is more aligned as it was there, there and at that time, that wasn't such a thick shell as it is today. So what was spiritually wrong expressed itself physically as well in this story. So you just go to show you that when you start reading a little deeper, these stories have far, far more meaning and significance and also explains why the Torah is telling us this in the first place. Okay. I want to just say on a concluding note, when today we see a child 
or a son of Shlomit. And Shlomit, interesting, is the name for Shalom, for completion, completeness. It's an interesting twist on this. So, of course, our attitude has to always be kindness, to draw them in, to be sensitive, to give them benefit of the doubt. Now, if you do indeed see someone that has become destructive to themselves and to others, so that doesn't mean that just unconditional love, you have to figure out what to do. Even when the person is, God forbid, in this case, put to death, and we don't have that right at all, but I'm saying even when there's a reason to have to deal or contain someone who's destructive, it's also done with love and kindness. But especially today. So even though then what they did, what they did, that was an ordinance, a command from God in the Torah, today we don't do that. We learn the lesson that there are times we may need to deal with someone, just like you put someone in prison who's a murdered someone. I was dealing with a situation where a family had a son who unfortunately was very, very rebellious. And um, so, of course, today especially, we focus on the love that we have to give and try to help in any given way. But then he was becoming destructive. I don't want to say all the details of the end of the story, but he ended up doing something destructive, not just physically destructive. He, He hurt and killed somebody in the family. And I remember someone saying, oh, you see, you shouldn't have shown, shouldn't show love to him because now he's become a criminal. And it's true, that could happen. So I was giving some guidance. I said, look, under these circumstances, obviously you can't, he's, the, he's, a, he's, a, he's a dangerous person. Now the reasons that he did this, you can find all kinds of trauma and other reasons that he did it, but there comes a point of destructiveness. That would be the equivalent to the story here. So then, even if you have to... Has to, he has to face justice and the crimes that he did as an adult, that still doesn't mean you don't love him. So this is a longer discussion, which we will discuss, but I just wanted to point out that we have examples for it. But that's an extreme. We can't assume that every troubled child and every son or daughter that is dealing with is rebellious is a murderer, God forbid, or even a potential one. In most cases, that's not the case. That's one extreme case, and we have to address it. But in most cases, that's not the case. Often parents and communities actually hurt children in that assumption. They think, okay, since he's not doing what I'm doing, the next thing he's like a murderer. Maybe not a murderer, but close to it. And that is also a terrible crime. So it's important to also know the other side of the sensitivity that's always necessary. While we also recognize there are situations, case by case, that have to be dealt with maybe with more extreme measures. So I just wanted to add that which perhaps is a good segue to um, the next to the Omer that we're going to talk about. I see some topics I won't have time to discuss, so be it. Um, let's just do the Omer. Let's begin with this question. What was the Omer offering of barley they brought in Beis Amigdash? How could they use barley during Pesach if barley is one of the grains that are chametz, that are forbidden on Pesach? Seems like a very powerful klotzkash, right? Well, anyone that learned Mesechta Menachis knows there's a Pedic, a whole Pedic, Pedic Vov. In Mishnah, it's Pedic Yud. Malach HaShlem already discusses that. And what is the name of the Pedic? It says, Kol HaMenachis, Boyes Matzah. All the Menachis that were brought in the Beis Hamidosh were brought as Matzah, unleavened. They were not allowed to be leavened. They were... Not only on Pesach, all year round. Chutz, melechem aponim, meshtei alechem. There's an exception. 
So the barley, the se'edim, the mincha se'edim that was brought the second day of Pesach, goes into that category as the Mishnah enumerates and as the Gemara continues there, that whole Pesach talks about this. So sometimes a question like that is completely diffused when you understand the whole basis of it. And there's explanations why it has to be that way. Remember, Chomet's Pesach represents ego and so on throughout the year in the Beis Amigdash, and we talked about it's more, a more sensitive place. All year round, Minchel shouldn't be allowed to, uh, to be leavened is one of the, the more the primistic explanations. So that's the quick answer to that question. I haven't seen many shuls do this, but do you think it would be a good idea that at the end of Shachris, someone announces the last night's Omer number without a brach as a reminder? So anyone who may have forgot to count the night before can count right after Shachris, the morning service, and then be able to, then be able to continue future counts with a blessing. By the way, this year I've been using your awesome My Omer app, and it's been the longest stretch in my life where I'm still counting with a blessing, so thank you for making the app. So My Omer, you can find on Android or iOS. It's a good place to announce it. It is an excellent, even though we're in the middle of the Omer, it's an excellent app that not only reminds you, but also has a journal and includes the meditations or the thoughts, the insights, introspection of each day, chesed of chesed, all the way to malchus of malchus. So check that out, My Omer app. Um, in the app store, the My Omer, called My Omer. Now, it's an interesting suggestion. I see no reason why not. I mean, obviously, you always want to run things by the Rav, by the rabbi of the shul and the Rav, in case there may be some issue, just to remind people. I don't see any issue why not. Then maybe it's a very good suggestion to implement. Um, well, the night before, if anyone was in shul, of course they count, so people know. But I don't think any problem with announcing it. Of course, it has to be done correctly, because of the, the, not to say the number, but it's the night before, so I assume that you could do it. And that would be a good reminder. So I'm glad I read that. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, there seems a lot of overlapping in the combinations of spheres corresponding to the different days of the Omer. For example, what's the difference between Netzach within Chesed and Chesed within Netzach? So of course, when you talk about the spheres, and this goes into the book that I created, I wrote, created, that I composed, collecting from different places, an explanation of each of the 49 attributes, which are seven times seven. So, of course, when you're dealing with seven emotions, chesed, gvodet, teferes, netzach, yesed, malchus, which briefly, love, discipline, compassion, or empathy, determination, tenacity, yielding, flexibility, humility, yesed being bonding, and dignity, and then with each one of them, there's seven, there's going to be overlap. But the key thing to remember when I did the book, I remember I had to find one, there are many different ways the spheres are explained. And I had to find one shita, one approach that would be consistent. Which answers a question people ask me. I've seen in another place, it's explained differently. Absolutely. First of all, even the thing like chesed or gvurit, tefetis can be explained in many different ways. Hoid itself has three meanings. Tefetis, of course, is one of the more challenging ones. Malchus, yesod, some are easier, but they all have many different ad- applications. I chose one. The one I chose was that in each case, when you look at a midah, think of that as the primary. You say, chesed, shebe chesed, gvura shebe chesed, tefer shebe chesed, in week one, the focus is love, chesed. But for chesed to be complete, you need gvura shebe chesed. You need a measure of discipline, like the raindrops. Example that is brought on this. You need compassion within chesed. When you're dealing with the week of gvura, chesed shebe gvura, the focus then is on discipline or severity or discretion. 
And discretion needs also, discipline also needs the love within discipline. Is there something similar between the love within discipline as there is discipline within love? Yeah, but the difference is one is the focus on love and making love complete and kindness complete, and the other is the focus on discipline. The same thing with when you, when you ask about Netzach, Netzach is endurance or tenacity, love that is consistent. So the Netzach Shebechesed is to make sure the love is consistent. And when you're dealing with Chesed Shebechesed, there the primary thing is how is your tenacity? Does your tenacity have love in it? Does it have, does it have kindness in it? So of course there are overlaps and some places are a little more difficult to see the distinction. But there is clearly a distinction when you realize what's the primary and what are you building? What is the primary emotion or attribute? And what are the details within it to make it complete? That would make things a little clearer. I'll be honest, there are places where the ideas are explained the opposite. Where chesed shebe where gvura shebe chesed, the focus is on the gvura. But I don't want to go there. I chose this path because this is one consistent and cohesive way to explain it. Next question. Do we know anything about Rabbi Akiva's reaction to so many of his students dying? Actually, let me start with a question before that. What went wrong with Rabbi Akiva's students who did not respect each other? Was it a failure on the part of Rabbi Akiva and his yeshiva? How did Rabbi Akiva react to their death? So here, do we know anything about Rabbi Akiva's reaction to so many of his students dying? Did he, during this period in time, between Pesach and Atzeres, as the Gemara says, between Pesach and Shavuos, the 24,000 students, or the 12,000 pairs of students of the Rabbi Akiva, adding to 24, did he feel responsible as the head of the yeshiva? And did he ever talk about it publicly? Did the public and the other rabbis of the time hold him responsible? As the leader of the yeshiva, why was he not also punished by Hashem for his students' improper behavior? Our people have held him in a very high esteem for many centuries. How did that happen when so many of his students were punished? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't respect Rabbi Akiva, but one who would think that his reputation would be very tarnished because how his students were punished. Was he able to rebuild his yeshiva with new students or were people afraid to study there? What was the aftermath? What were the consequences of this tragedy? Because the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva disrespected each other and didn't live according to the values and teachings of the Torah, could it be said that the academy of Rabbi Akiva was a lousy school that didn't instruct its students properly? Again, I read, the, I read it as is, even though the tone is somewhat disrespectful, and, uh, but I understand where some people are coming from. So let me respond. So first of all, remember that Rabbi Akiva was a person until 40 years old. He was not aware of Alabes of Teda. It was at 40 where he began the process and married the daughter of Kabbasavua and ultimately went to learn Teda and become one of the, great, the greatest of all. Come back with all the students. That's number one. Secondly, Rabbi Akiva taught the principle. So he, so he understood pain, and he came from pain. He came from darkness. And that's one of the reasons Rabbi Akiva, from the word Akiv, Akiva. Akiv, like the heel, like Yaakov. The second thing is he taught the mitzvah, the Haftarecha Kamaycha, last week's Pasha, Zekla Godl Bater. He didn't just teach it, it means he lived it. And he taught it to his students. So to wrong Rabbi Akiva here, absolutely not, even though a teacher always takes some responsibility. So we have to understand what went wrong. Absolutely, we have to understand. But the story is not over. 
the Gemara continues if you, you're not bringing the second half. That what happened, the world became Shomem, the Gemara says. The world became like a wilderness. It became, it became um, desolate because of the Torah that so much, so much, these great students that were learning and teaching. So then he went and found the five students, which in turn became the five greatest leaders. And Kula Aliba the Rabbi Akiva, that everything follows Rabbi Akiva. So he rebuilt. And he became the great Rabbi Akiva. Now, I don't know if we have anywhere documented how he felt about it, but I'm sure he didn't have to feel good. Must have felt terrible. He did probably take responsibility. It, I don't see anywhere that is connected that the fact that he was killed so, so, so uh, barbarically by the Romans is connected to this. Uh, actually, the, from Rabbi Kiva's point of view, it was Mesiris Nefesh, his ability to perform Mesiris Nefesh. But it's just interesting to note. So what went wrong? So the Rebbe explains, Chassidus explains, using the world of Toyu. In Toyu, which is a holy world, there's tremendously powerful divine energies. But since it's not yet a developed world, the energies are too strong for the containers. So imagine putting into a room five people who are geniuses, but they're not yet fully mature. They haven't yet developed the humility necessary to cooperate and coexist. It's their genius that can kill them. If they're not so great energies, so fine, being more mediocre or more on a lower level, they won't burn each other. But you have the concept of nichve b'chuposhe that a Tamil Chochem can be burned by being too close to the canopy of a colleague. You need the right boundaries. And that was what was lacking. Their intensity was what ultimately destroyed them. They were lacking a certain element of bitl. In Atsilus and Tikkun this explains, what happens is the energy is not that intense. So therefore it's able to cooperate with each other, the energies, and also with the containers. So there's a balanced world. Imagine all the organs and limbs in a human being were full intensity and didn't leave room for each other, we wouldn't have a healthy human organism. The key is that everything, when you take a piece of food in your mouth, when you're chewing, you're chewing. Then when it goes down the gullet, it goes down the food pipe, not the windpipe. The windpipe has to close off. Then when it goes into the digestive process, everything opens and closes properly. Imagine everything was open. We're all open for business. You'd have complete destruction, God forbid. The same thing with the blood flow. Not too thick and not too thin. Too thick can clot, too thin can hemorrhage. Everything is balanced. And that's unfortunately the story. Rabbi Akiva had tremendous anguish from it. Though it says the world was shaman. He gave his whole life for learning Torah and look what happened. But we learn also from that. We learn of the possibilities of what happens when people have Torah and they don't have the bitl, they don't have the humility. The ability to cooperate, things like this could happen. Unfortunately, we see that today as well. Judgment, condescension, divisiveness, not accepting another, dismissing them, even if they may have a different opinion than you. Fine, so you could be passionate. But how are you passionate about an opinion without hurting yourself and another? That's the lesson. That's why we're told the story. We're not just told Lashon Haragar for a bit negative about what happened to the 24,000. As a matter of fact, one of the commentaries explains... I think it's, um, not sure which commentary, Beben um, maybe Yehoyada, explains why was it say 12,000 pairs? Because Rabbi Kiva anticipated that there may be issues. So he paired together a, a, a superior student of his with a lesser one. So yet each one had a chavrusa, so to speak. So it was 12,000, was, it, was, it, was, 
Chavrus's pairs of 12,000, which added up to 24,000, but that didn't help. But then, just as we learn from the negative, we learn what to do next. And Rabbi Akiva, the next generation of his students, those five that remained, some say remained, some say that, well, it was remained from them, were people who did have this maturity, that did have, did have this bitl, and did have this cooperation. And one of them is Rajbi, which is the hero of Lagba Emer, Rab Meir, and the other three that the Gemara mentions. And they rebuilt the table, and the world became founded again. They got rid of the desolation because they did it the right way. And that's in Judaism, you'll always find even the negative things ultimately turn around, and that's a transformation. So clearly, Rabbi Akiva must have had anguish. If we have anguish and we don't make weddings and celebrate during this time, Rabbi Akiva for sure. But he also had the other side. He went and did something about it. He didn't just lie down and die, God forbid. He did not close his yeshiva, thank God. He corrected what had to be done and built up the world again and gave us the Torah to the point that Moshe Rabbeinu even said, Matan Torah should happen to Rabbi Akiva, through Rabbi Akiva. Because when Moshe Rabbeinu heard things from Rabbi Akiva, he himself didn't know. He rebuilt, and now we have, generations later, the students of all these great students of Rabbi Akiva, and Kula Liba de Rabbi Akiva, everything follows Rabbi Akiva, because he rebuilt the world, even though the first stage was this stage. So Toyu, Seisar Amanas Livnes, the destruction that came was in order to rebuild, and like Baimer, we begin rebuilding. And that's ultimately the goal, not just to stop and talk about the negative, but also talk how the negative feeds into the positive. I want to, let me, let me conclude with um, with a topic that's coming to the news lately, and I think it's worth talking about. So we'll conclude with this. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, the abortion debate is now in the newspapers again because of an alleged leaked document saying the Supreme Court plans to reverse Roe versus Wade and ban abortions. A few weeks ago, when the issue of gender was being discussed, extreme left-wing liberals were unable to define what a woman is because they said they're not biologists, so how can they know the intricate details of what a human body is? But now, those same extreme liberals are experts in the human body, and they believe they know at what stage a fetus is alive or not alive. Okay, very good point. This would be a good opportunity to discuss the terrorist viewpoint on abortion, and if possible, can you quote terrorist sources and say life begins at conception, and therefore it is our belief that abortion is wrong, unless it is an extreme case where, for medical reasons, a doctor says that carrying the baby to full term will be dangerous and could harm the mother. So yes, this debate is raging again. A lot of it is political. A lot of it reflects, as many even secular writers and thinkers have pointed out, a certain degeneration, degeneration, <laughs> degeneration, degenerating of this attitude towards sexuality in general and to life and the sanctity of life. Because there's one issue about is abortion murder or not. From a Torah point of view, the fact of the matter is it's more uber yerech imay, especially when it comes to a Jewish mother, which means it's part of the mother and you're not allowed to even mutilate a part of your body. However, if it comes down to choosing the life of the fetus, God forbid, or the life of the mother, if it was a full life, then, the, then who says the mother's life takes precedent? 
But because it's not a complete life, that's why you could have abortion if it's dangerous, as you point out, pekoach nefesh mamish, or sofik pekoach nefesh, or whatever the, the doctors and the rabbis determine and should always be done under that supervision, not based on what I'm saying in a program, my, my life is applied. Always ask proper authorities, a rabbi, a doctor, several, to get a clear opinion when it comes to this matter. Because we're not talking about small matter, we're talking about life and death, and we're talking about very important matters. But then there's another thing called the sanctity of life. Many have described how since Roe versus Wade, what it did was create a climate for children and adults of a seemingly, you know, it's uncomfortable for me that I had a child who was a and I became pregnant. It's an accident. We abort for no particularly strong reason. The sanctity of life. And that became my rights just to not have a baby, meaning to have sexual freedom, so to speak, became more important than the sanctity of life. And that created, definitely debased, and created a very um, desensitized attitude to the whole issue of life itself. Now, before Roe versus Wade, let's keep in mind, it wasn't abortion was illegal. Every state was able to deal, deal with it. And different states have different attitudes. They're more right-wing, more left-wing, more liberal, more conservative. It was when the Supreme Court got involved, and many say wrongly so. Even liberal justices, I remember an attorney that I worked with, he told me when he was in, in, in college, in law school, in a prominent law school, I think Harvard Law School, one of the prominent ones, he had a professor that was considered one of the most liberal professors. And he presented this question of Roe versus Wade, it was just then on the headlines. And he said, I want everybody's opinion on this matter. What do you think about the opinion of the Supreme Court? So everyone felt they're going to get the highest mark by defending the opinion because he was known as the biggest liberal. They all failed because he said, no, I know you thought I'm a liberal, but this was based on political reasons, not based on law. On law, there is no such constitutional right. It doesn't say that the state shouldn't determine, but the mere fact was definitely impositioned by the Supreme Court in areas they shouldn't have imposed. So the truth is there's a political side to this whole thing, and that's why you have to separate between the two. The essential concept of abortion and the Torah is really about sanctity, about the preciousness, that we don't just make moves. Yes, you're going to have an intimate relationship. It should be done in a sacred way. That's what the Torah says. You're created by God. We're accountable to God. Sexuality is not just for pleasure. And it's not just you can do whatever you like. It's true that women always suffered the consequence of that because they were the ones that get pregnant. The man can just disappear, God forbid. But that's also a travesty. Someone makes a woman pregnant, should be done in the context of marriage, and if not, the responsibility has to be there. So you're dealing with human responsibility here and sanctity. It's far bigger. Once the Supreme Court got into it, they turned it into a political issue, and that's a big problem. If it goes back to the states, they'll still make these decisions. There's still much to argue about, but what other way can you deal with it in a democracy? So I think we have to distinguish between these different topics. I'm not here to comment on whether Roe versus Wade was right or wrong. Should it go back to the states? I'm commenting on the general topic. Even a state, should a state allow it? Now we know we live in a climate, in a secular world, where that's what people are demanding. The question is, should the government, how much should the government intervene in that matter? Should a government come and say, our job is to maintain the sanctity of life? Well, we see they do when it comes to, God forbid, someone trying to commit suicide. They mobilize the police department, the fire department. Why, why, why person has a right to take or not live or not live? 
even if he wasn't hurting anyone else, because the standard is, that's called those being destructive. So this is a far bigger topic, and I would like to have more time to discuss it, but this is some points that I would make. But I'd like to conclude on a positive note. The positive note is, Judaism is v'chai behem. It's all about celebrating life. And when we now, in the, in the counting of the Omer, month of Ir, Ani Hashem Refecha, it's about the sanctity of life, the preciousness of life. Life is God's gift to you. Birth is God saying you matter. And we do everything possible to both live and preserve life and to heal and to do everything to help life thrive in this world. Because your life is meaningful, indispensable, and you were sent here on a mission. The mission is to make the little corner of your world, or big corner of your world, a home for the divine. Adir b'tachtein. That is our mission. So, in conclusion, My Life is Applied episode, this has been My Life is Applied episode 401. May we all have a very healing and a very growthful and thriving month of year. Ani Hashem Refecha. May we no longer hear of any negative things, only positive ones. And I do believe I will follow up with many questions I didn't have a chance to get to. Everyone have a very good week and a very continuing powerful month of year, only in good health and long life. And we should be zeichet to the gula amit is vashlema, which comes through your futsu, minasecha chutza. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Call to be well, everyone. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.